This is Greater LA, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. I'm Saul Gonzalez, Los Angeles hosting correspondent for KQED's The California Report, filling in this week for Steve Chiatakis. Thanks for going, Metro. The next stop is Universal City, Studio City Station at Lancashire Boulevard and Campo de Galenga. During the worst months of the COVID pandemic, ridership on LA mass transit plummeted as people stayed home or avoided public transportation altogether for fear of contagion. More recently though, ridership has steadily increased, nearly reaching pre-pandemic levels. And Metro, LA County's transportation agency, wants to keep that momentum going. But in public forums and on social media, Metro has also heard from riders who complain about quality of service and safety and policing issues. In response, the agency has focused on improving the ridership experience, especially when it comes to passenger security. We wanted to see what those changes look like and if they're making a difference. So I jumped on the train. To see how Metro is rethinking public transit with a renewed focus on, well, the public, just go to a busy light rail or subway station and look for the pleasant people offering information. That's one of Metro's transit ambassadors. Started in late 2022, the ambassadors program consists of some 350 people who dressed in clearly identifiable neon colored polo shirts and windbreakers are stationed at Metro transit stations where they offer cheerful help. That help can range from assisting riders in buying a transit card to giving them advice about how best to get to their destinations. So with that one-way trip you have, mm -hmm. it's basically free for two trips. At um, Union Station, one, one Metro Ambassador Gilberto Morales directs first-time rider Jose Lopez. Very helpful, yeah, I was lost. I was lost, he came here, he saved my life. At Bunker Hills Light Rail Station, Ambassador Ariana Moore tells me about the positive feedback she hears from riders daily. People come up to us and they tell us how much they appreciate us. They tell us how much we made their day better, how much we've helped them. Along with offering a kind of mass transit concierge service, Metro ambassadors also play a public safety role. They report acts of vandalism and carry Narcan to counter drug overdoses. And just the ambassador's presence at stations is supposed to make riders feel safer. Sometimes some people will come and ask, can they stand next to us just to feel like they have some type of protection. A recent Metro survey reported more than 60% of riders say they feel more secure because of the presence of ambassadors. If people don't feel safe, they don't ride, says Jennifer Vitas, Metro's chief customer experience officer. We want to make sure that everybody who rides Metro feels safe and is safe. Of course, there are people and problems on LA public transit that go way beyond what Metro's ambassadors are trained to do. Namely, the large number of riders who are homeless and use trains, buses, and stations as temporary shelters. Now to help that population, Metro has turned to teams of homeless outreach workers like Julian Turner. I look for signs of homelessness, despair, if they soiled, um, if you see them crying, you can recognize there's this lady right here, the mental illnesses. With a partner, Turner spends his days moving from one transit station to another, looking for unhoused people who need help. 
Turner can offer them referrals to homeless services and items like personal hygiene kits. You all right out here? Yeah, I'm Turner says a huge challenge working with the mass transit homeless compared to people in, say, encampments is their mobility. It's hard to do follow-ups with people if they're constantly moving from train to train or station to station. That's why you told, heard me telling them the one essential thing that they got to have is a phone. Reason why we communication. I can communicate with them from wherever they are. You see, the ones that ride these rails, these trains, they know the trains just as well as we do. They'll sleep here tonight if it's safe. Tomorrow they might be at the beach. At the Pershing Square subway station, Turner meets Mary Lou, who doesn't want her last name used because she's been a victim of domestic violence. I do spend a lot of my time on the subway. Mary Lou says she rides public transit because it makes her feel a little safer. The morning Turner met her, she was also hungry. So Turner leaves the station with Mary Lou to buy her some pizza and a coffee and give her some toiletries. So what happened here? Like, what, what, what just occurred? You know, he just made a miracle. There were times where three days ago, I was in so much depression that I said to myself, okay, yeah, I'm just gonna end it. I'm just done. And then today, <laughs> today there was hope again. But Turner acknowledges there are limits to how much help Metro's homeless outreach teams can give to people like Mary Lou. We need open beds. We need places to put these people. But if you tell them, okay, I got to make a referral for you, and then there's no bed, and then I got to come back and tell them that, well, they're going to get disturbed. And the next time you see them, they're going to go, oh, man, you lied to me. Your safety is our top priority. Help us help you by keeping your valuables and money out of sight. Then there's the issue of crime and drugs on the metro system. In just one three-month period last year, more than 20 people died in and around metro facilities. But officials say crime numbers have dramatically fallen in recent months because of stepped-up policing. Please stand clear. The doors are closing. Regular Metro rider Michael Washington says he feels safer now than a few months ago, but still wishes more police rode trains and buses instead of focusing on patrolling stations and platforms. Just to have somebody, you know, like, you know, in a uniform that is on the train, because that's when stuff kicks off. Policing on Metro's transit system is mostly handled through contracts with local law enforcement agencies. But Metro is studying the idea of creating its own transit police force. Gina Osborne is the chief safety and security officer for Metro. I think it would it would give us the opportunity to have more accountability, to have more transparency. Uh, it would allow us to provide the, the training that Metro believed to be important for, for these officers. But some civil rights and transportation experts question the need for transit cops. UCLA transportation expert Madeline Brosen says Metro should instead double down on its new outreach programs. So I think if anything is missing, it's just that we don't have enough of the newer types of things, right? There are not enough path teams on the system to connect um, people experiencing homelessness to services. There are not enough ambassadors on the system so that every station you go to, you see one. Brozen also says better and faster service that attracts more riders is also key to safety on public transit. One of the most important things that we can do to make people feel safe on the system is to get more people to ride it. That's the number one thing people are looking for is fast and reliable service. And so once you're kind of making sure you're hitting those most important things, 
then you start to see kind of, okay, you know, people coming back and then you're going to get more people on. And then that kind of keeps rebounding in a virtuous way. Welcome aboard the Metro B-Line. This train's final destination is Union Station in downtown LA. As more people return to mass transit in LA in the wake of the pandemic, Metro hopes its increased focus on customer service will keep them riding for good. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Moving on now with Greater LA from KCRW, I'm Saul Gonzalez. Even people with a passing knowledge of California history know that Spanish colonizers established the mission system, outposts of European faith, conquest, and culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. But that tale is often told and taught from the perspective of the settlers. I know because I still remember building my required Spanish mission in fourth grade California history class. Well, an art exhibit at the Autry Museum of the American West subverts this traditional telling of the state's history and illuminates the effects of the mission system from the indigenous perspective. The exhibit, titled Reclaiming El Camino, details the hardships native populations faced under European settlement and highlights indigenous resistance. Reclaiming El Camino was curated in partnership with Native artists and tribal community members. It was curated by Dina Dart, who's of Chumash descent, and Dina joins us now. Welcome, Dina. Hi, Saul. So briefly explain what's on display at Reclaiming El Camino at the museum. So it's a retelling from an Indigenous perspective, as you just said, and um, it does so through the use of historic materials, um, as well as contemporary art from um, the leading uh, Native artists in California and um, and some emerging artists as well. But the perspectives of the Native people along El Camino, the people um, who descend from that fraught history. And so in each piece and each, each text panel, we are offering the visitor a different portal into that history. Hmm. You know, when it comes to that narrative, we're having this national and very heated conversation right now, right? Uh, about identity and history and who we are and what we were. How do you think that plays out in the in the California context when it comes to the Spanish colonial era and the indigenous and, and, and first peoples uh, population that were here? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the identity piece is one of the sort of foundational or cornerstone issues in the exhibition because as Indigenous Californians, we are, um, you know, in in contemporary context, we are mixed heritage people. Most of our families um, that that were impacted by the missions are also um, a product of that 
that ethnic mixing, right? The, the people who came north to colonize California for Spain, primarily indigenous and, and African descent people, not actually Spaniards. Um, some had Spanish ancestry, but most Californians, most, most Americans don't recognize that Mm. But, you know, I, I do want to stick to the idea of, of changing narrative and changing perspective yeah. and what you try to do when you're trying to say, listen, there is a whole other vantage point to the Spanish colonial experience in California. I want you to at least try to understand it. How hard is that work? Is, is it like moving like a 900 ton rock? <laughs> Uh, it is. I was just. I just met with girlfriends, and I. I likened it to um, giving birth. It long a long gestational birth. I mean, it, it. It is challenging a dominant narrative, one that is so, um, so entrenched, so uh, celebrated, really, in California. The Spanish architecture, that road lined with its bells, and um, endearing. Um, connection to those missions and the mission gardens and the opulence, right? Uh, people get married in those missions. Um, so disrupting that dominant narrative is, um, in some cases, it might be impossible. So, and, you know, that that old narrative is still alive and well in 19 of the 21 missions. And so, you know, this one exhibition is trying to undo decades of storytelling. Yeah. You know, uh, your exhibition is titled Reclaiming El Camino. El Camino or the road is the, the road that Spanish settlers built or established to travel from one mission to another. We know it in our contemporary times, right? Because there are these historical markers with the bells. You just mentioned that. And I just wonder, um, how is the El, El Camino symbolized in the exhibition, if it is? And number two, when you're driving, you know, on the highways and freeways of California and you see those bells along the path of the El Camino, what do you think as a sojourner, as a traveler? Yeah, well, as as a native person, those those bells are a source of of trauma to for us to see over and over again. It's like revisiting that moment in history that was the very most devastating and painful for us, right? Um, so uh, the bells figure prominently in the exhibition for a reason, and in they're they're represented in three different ways. One, in context um, of the missions and the way that they were used during mission period times. Those bells were rung every single time. They governed the lives of Mission Indians. And um, and then later they were celebrated and, and adopted as, you know, part of Caltrans, you know, mar marker, historical marking of the trail. And then um, most recently they've been removed um, as a result of Native people, um, you know, protesting that visual representation of genocide along the road. And so recently, the California Missions Foundation, which is a, a white historian-led organization um, that's been about raising funds to restore the missions, has petitioned UNESCO to make El Camino Real a, a World Heritage Corridor, a binational World Heritage Corridor. And when they first submitted that petition, Val Lopez of the Amamutsun um, reached out to several Native leaders, and I was part of that conversation, 
to to actually take such a petition into native hands um, and therefore recognizing the road as a very important part of native history, first as a trade route for thousands and thousands of years, right? And then as um, the site for the colonization and genocide of the California Indian people, um, not as a celebratory one more time sort of um, memorializing Spanish conquest. And um, so it was during that time that we started having conversations in our communities about the road and um, how to reclaim it. What would that look like? That is also interesting. All right. Reclaiming El Camino, Native Resistance in the Missions and Beyond is currently on display at the Autry Museum there in Griffith Park. An opening reception for the exhibit will be held on January 27th. We've been speaking to Dina Dart, the curator of the exhibit. Dina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Saul. It's been a pleasure. More now with Greater LA on KCRW. I'm KQED Saul Gonzalez filling in for Steve Chiatakis. Let's turn now to food and how LA's restaurants are faring as we start a new year. 2023 was certainly a difficult year for restaurants in Los Angeles with dozens of notable and beloved eateries shuttering their doors for good. But there was also good news, like the city making outdoor dining regulations permanent. Here to discuss the LA restaurant scene that was in 2023 and what's ahead in this freshly baked 2024 is Greater LA regular and eater writer Mona Holmes. Hey, Mona. Hello. I'm so delighted to talk to you. I'm so looking forward to this. So <laughs> we had so many L.A. restaurants that were so loved and had been around for generations closed in the last several months, um, like uh, Olvera Street's La Golondrina, for instance. There's El Tropical, one of my favorites on Sunset. What the heck happened? I thought we were coming out of the pandemic and the restaurant business would be booming. That sentiment was pretty common amongst us over at Eater L.A., uh, 2023 was definitely difficult. I've spoken to a lot of restaurant owners who say that 2023 was the most challenging ever, even more so than the first two years of COVID. Now, I, on this program, I've also talked about how this is an incredibly hard business. It's got a high failure rate. It's got thin profit margins. But after the last two years, over the last two years, Everyone's noticed something consistent, and that is that prices are higher. And that's, of course, due to the rising costs of goods. Um, and that's just not for that's just not for those for who are in business. It's for us too. I mean, my grocery bill is considerably higher than it's ever been. And then you factor in rising rents. We just had a higher minimum wage that just kicked in. Uh, you have how difficult it is to sometimes to work with others. You you factor in all of this and you have a very difficult year for restaurants, not just in L.A., but even throughout the state. Hmm. And I assume the entertainment industry strikes played some kind of a role in this. Hard 100 percent. Oh, fully. The people who live here, as you know, <laughs> this is an industry town and we have a lot of executives or people who work on film and TV sets that, that go out to eat. And the strike lasted 148 days. And so that meant um, 148 days of people not working, execs not wanting to be seen spending while negotiating a new contract with actors and writers. That had a notable impact. 
Now, I spoke about this um, almost for an hour with the owner of Leona Sushi in the Valley, and he told me that he noticed a 30% drop when the strike began and throughout that entire 148 days. And, you know, his customer base is primarily industry in some form or even those who support the industry. So it's been it's had a massive impact. Let's talk about some good news and a big piece of good news for LA restaurants are these al fresco outdoor dining regulations that are that are now permanent in Los Angeles. This comes out of the pandemic, right? How big of a deal is that? Huge, huge. Everyone was nervous. This has been something that was um, on the docket for a year because there was talk about rolling back those same uh, the same ease of which people or restaurant owners could actually um, add outdoor dining. And that's in the form of a parklet or adding uh, seating to parking lots. That was, you know, when that started happening, there was definitely a panic. And so, but this was a huge effort. This was the city council. This was from the mayor's office. These were restaurant advocates and actual restaurants that said, you know, this is the one lifeline that that has been thrown to us over the last three years. And thank goodness that they made it permanent because, I mean, everyone's noticed it. You drive around the city or you're walking around, the outdoor dining has changed the landscape of the city for, for the better. All right, let's turn to the plates that were in these restaurants. When you, Mona Holmes, went into a restaurant in 2023 and sat down and saw you know food trends play out on your plate, what did you like? What didn't you like so much? <laughs> well, first off, always ask your bartender or your server what's the best thing to eat. I mean, that's that's that will that will triumph over trends every single time. Uh, but there's been some interesting stuff. So um, one of my favorites was how there's these grocer dine-in spots like Sua Superette and Larchmont. Uh, there was also Little Fish in Echo Park, Carla's in Highland Park. At each place, you can dine in or get goods to take on. And I love that. And um, I had an excellent fish sandwich at Little Fish, by the way, just FYI. Um, you know, and also, too, like, I, I love how there's just this new movement around wine bars. You know, there's places like Le Champ in the Arts District and Sur Le Vert near Beverly Hills. They they added so much flavor, and I love the direction that that's going. So, so let's let's hope that those keep moving. Uh, and and looking <laughs> ahead to twenty twenty four, what are you psyched about? What are you nervous about when it comes to the restaurant scene or food generally in L A? Let's talk about the things that I think will keep going because L A seems to be on this Italian train, like the number of places that have. Um, open that that are mostly Italian, like Funky in Beverly Hills or the red tablecloth style, but still very upscale in Echo Park called Donna's, which also too, I love that restaurant. But I'll tell you what the trend that I'm most excited about in 2024 is the continuation of this labor movement with restaurants. Starbucks workers, Koreatown restaurant workers, all unionizing. And then there was Gavin Newsom, our governor, signing that historic bill that establishes a fast food council that's um, designed to aid fast food workers throughout the state. And there's a half a million of them with more power and more protections. 
And those, I, I don't see either of those slowing down, so we can definitely keep an eye on them all. Yeah, and <laughs> but, I'm going to add to that, don't be afraid of the hole-in-the-wall places, right? Oh, always the best, aren't they? Yes. Always. That's why you live in the city, people. <laughs> Experience the hole-in-the-wall places. All right. I've been speaking to Mona Holmes, reporter for Eater LA and Greater LA. Mona, thanks so much, and such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Saul. And that is it for us today. Wasn't that a great show, by the way? I learned so much. For all of you who are worried, don't worry. Steve Chiatakis will be back from vacation next week, incredibly well-rested. Join us then for a story about how L.A. is reinventing the ancient art of clowning. Yeah, I said clowning. And a visit with a Venice artistic couple whose home is covered inside and outside with tile art. It's become a tourist attraction. Oh, and comedian Kate Berlant will be here soon. She has a show coming up on the Pasadena Playhouse. You can check out all the shows online anytime you want at kcrw.com slash GLA. You can also share feedback and any opinions you might have. That's kcrw.com slash GLA. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Gante, Eddie Sun, Sonia Geis, Ray Guarna, Phil Richards, Amy Tong, Carlos Ramirez, Christine Camito, Michael Vogel, and Christian Bordal all made today's show possible. I'm your guest host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us and see you on the airwaves. <laughs>